Welcome to the Fatty Z Musky Podcast. I'm Andy, joined by Todd Young. Hi, Todd. Hello. I'm here. Hello. Vance, how are you? I'm doing. I'm doing all right. And we have Jared. Hi, Jared. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Jared is going to be, I think, extremely interesting, a very great insight. But before that, we got to pay some bills. So... This show is brought to you by Fatty Z Musky products. FattyZMusky.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Rod holders. I'm selling a bunch of them. I just put up that video I promised last week on Facebook. A lot of interest in those new risers we have. Setting up some really cool boats. DK put up a really nice post. If anyone knows who DK is, I'm sure everyone does. Uh, with those risers. But the baits, we are going to have a whole bunch of swim baits, which is kind of not normal for this time of year. But Vance has been killing it. We got them all painted up, ready for the Columbus show that we're going to here in a few days, the Columbus Fishing Expo. And for the Raptors, uh, we're pretty decent on them. But, you know, check out Team Rhino Outdoors for some exclusive colors and musky tackle online. They do have big orders placed. However, I have not filled them yet. I'm going quick, but I'm just going to, because I want to talk to Jared some. So, Todd, tell us about Muddy Creek. Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, mcfishingguides.com. Give us a call early season, early season being you know late April and into May. We'll be doing some fishing in Pennsylvania, some different bodies of water there. And then come uh, Memorial Day weekend, Vance and I will be hitting it hard at Chautauqua Lake up in New York. We're fishing through November. And uh, give us a call. We'll do everything we can to get you out there and get you on some fish. Perfect. Vance, how do you like that boat of yours? Ranger Boats, big shout out to them. We loved them all last season. We're going to love them again this season. Uh, thanks for sponsoring the show, Ranger Boats, where you can find your Ranger Boat. Or if you're going to buy a new Ranger Boat, check out Vic Sports Center in Kent, Ohio. Uh, at the end of the month here, they'll be doing a little open house. Uh, that is, I believe, February 23rd and 24th at Vic's. Um, and they kind of got a facelift there. They put in like a thousand square foot, uh, well, more than a thousand, like a 10,000 <laughs> square foot building. Yeah. Uh, just a giant, a giant. Uh, they brought in an Amish-built uh, shed to work on Ranger boats, the Starcrafts that they service and sell, and along with Star Welds, they also have a good used inventory. Um, so I would show up to that that show. There's going to be a bunch of different uh, speakers there on all species bass. Uh, Great Lakes fishing and uh, us musky bums will be there. But uh, check them out there and big shout out to Vix. Excellent. If you're in the market for a new fishing rod, check out St. Croix. Big extensive lineup. They added a few more, uh, I think they're Legend Tournament series. Uh, musky rods, find them anywhere St. Croix are sold or online. Todd, do you have anything nice to say about Muskie's Inc.? Muskie's Inc., what an organization. Very important to be involved. If you're into muskie fishing, I think it's very important to be involved in Muskie's Inc. They do a lot for your, your local chapters, get together, 
uh, have a lot of good outings, you know, between the tournaments, between the different parties they have, the picnics, and just, you know, getting getting hand in hand, getting down there. You meet some neat people there. You meet people of all, you know, some of these places have guys that fish the pro trail, and then there's other guys, members that have never even caught a muskie. So you can learn a lot from from attending the meetings and getting to know some people there, you know, and what your local club can do is uh, using that muskie ink name, easier to get involved with the local fisheries and, you know, work, work with them and trying to uh, work with maybe new laws or help to feed the, feed the baby muskies, you know, help to feed the bait fish, all kinds of things you can do. But muskie ink's a great organization, been around for 50 some years and uh, look it up. They're, most every state that has muskies has a chapter. Some states have many chapters. You know, find a local chapter and get involved. Do that. And we are going to be at the Pennsylvania Muskie Max Plus. First weekend in March. And, you know, it's plus for a reason. I think, Todd, have you worked out the details yeah. yet about what you're going, hopefully going to be doing? With your boat? No, I mean, not not many real details, but we're supposed to, uh, if everything works out, we're going to be taking, I'm going to be taking my boat down. It'll be sitting right beside our uh, booth, and we're going to be able to do some rod holder demonstrations, some trolling demonstrations throughout the uh, throughout the whole show. Maybe doing 10 of them. I don't know. Depends on how many people show interest, but uh, John's going to make some announcements. That's the plans right now. And uh, in between seminars, you know, we'll get together and talk, talk rod holders, talk troll, and uh, easy setups for people, you know, the way to tune in lures, you know, everything you want to know about troll. We'll get in, we can discuss it, and I can jump right in the boat. I'll be a lot more comfortable up there than up on stage. Yes. And the other great thing about having those boats there, Vix will be there with some boats, but Todd's boat will be Vicks there. We'll be there. Yeah. And you're going to be able to actually climb into the boat that Todd runs charters, and you're going to be able to see how he has it set up. You're going to see, oh, this is done a little bit different than maybe boat XYZ or your brother's boat or whatever it is. You can see, you can feel the differences. Just get your hands on this stuff. So that's going to be really great at the Muskie Max this year. Vance is going to be on the guide panel. Is that correct, Vance? Yes, it is. And uh, I'll be on 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 Sunday, I believe. It's um, it's like an ask the guy, you know, guides anything day uh, for Sunday open panel. I think it's like myself, some St. Clair guys, uh, Greg Thomas, uh, and Tony Grant, uh, the usual suspects. So. Uh, That'll be cool. Perfect. I don't know what it, what it really involves, but uh, we'll be up there willing to answer any questions that the public has. So hopefully right. it's fun and a little bit funny. Yeah, hopefully. But uh, come on down. Check it out. It's it's a great place. You can get some hard-to-find baits, meet the bait makers. It's a really good time. I'm looking forward to it here You know, in about a month from now. And real quick, I'm going to do one last plug. Actually, I'm going to send it off to Vance. Vance, where are you going to be Sunday? Uh, Sunday, I'm going to be at Muskie Road Rules in Pittsburgh. Um, it's in Mc the McKees Rocks area. Uh, come out, show your support. Muskie Road Rules is cool. Uh, Greg, Tony, myself are going to be doing some seminars. I'm going to be talking about um, revisiting some spots efficiently. And uh, check it out. 
Perfect. That'd be sweet. All right. Okay, we did this one in eight minutes. Last week it took us 30 minutes good. to get through that. So wow. we, we did we good. <laughs> Jared, you with us? I'm sorry. Okay. Now that we put you through that, could you give us a little introduction of who you are and what you do? All right. Uh, my name is Jared Sayers. I am the hatchery manager for the Lionsville State Fish Hatchery here in Pennsylvania. And as the hatchery manager of Lionsville, as of 2018 and 19, we are the only hatchery in Pennsylvania that is spawning, hatching, converting, and raising and stocking purebred muskies in Pennsylvania. The whole program is housed at Lionsville now. And um, I've been with the Fish and Boat Commission for about 12 years. And I've been lucky enough to be pretty much a part of the beginning of the muskie program as, it is, as it's known in the modern day, where we convert these fish onto dry food and be able to raise them quantities of them for a cheaper price. So I can pretty much answer any questions you have about Pennsylvania muskies. That is awesome. Okay. Who wants Wait. to dive into this? Because this is a big book here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go first. How about that? I have a couple just short Let's okay, hear it, you got it. No, you got shorties. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> no, uh, so how, how far, if, if Lionville's the only one, how far throughout state are you guys taking those guys to, we'll to take, stock them? Yeah, we'll still cover the whole entire state. There hasn't been um, any lakes removed from the stocking list recently. Um, mm -hmm. So what we'll do is if we're stalking, you know, down by Pittsburgh or way on the east side of the state over by Scranton or something, we'll, we'll meet, a, meet a truck from the Pleasant Mountain Hatchery down on Route 80 and, uh, we'll swap trucks and then they'll take the fish the rest of the day over for us. But they're all, they're all, the whole state will get stocked and they'll all start from Lionsville. Okay. So okay. Th those yeah, little that's, fish. That, that's interesting. Okay. So. I mean, I don't really, there's just so much here. I, I don't have a clear path, but I know. I'm going to, I'm going to go, we're going to pick a direction. So those little fish, let's, okay, before we go there, let's start out with how do you even get these little fish? You start okay. out with empty tanks. Yep. We what start out with empty tanks. So, um, we, we capture the adults with Pennsylvania style trap nets, which if people haven't seen that before, it's basically... Um, it's basically saying type material. Um, it's about a one inch mesh, kind of looks like a gill net, but it's a much smaller mesh than that. And we have a long lead line, which we tie off to a tree or something on the bank of, bank of the lake. And then we run that out for about a hundred feet towards the deeper water. And it's got weights on the bottom. So it's about four feet deep and it's got floats on top. So if you can picture just a long net with floats on top, weights on the bottom, running from shore towards the deeper water. So when the fish feel the urge to spawn, they start cruising the shorelines looking for proper habitat to hit those lead lines, and that directs them towards the deeper water. When they get to the end of that lead line, um, they're, they're welcomed with basically it's a large minnow trap. So the, the front of the net is a big open mouth, and they swim right into it. And then there's um, netting that kind of channels them down into a smaller opening, and then they swim through that and into a bigger chamber again. 
then that funnels them down into an even smaller hole and now into another bigger chamber. There's actually three chambers. And by the time they get to the last chamber, which is basically just swimming forward, then that guides them through there. They can't find their way back out because it's such a small hole and such a big chamber that they're in. So then each morning of the trap netting season, we take a boat out. We go right to the deep end. We pull that last chamber up on the boat, unzip it, and all the muskies are sitting right there for us to net them out. We'll put them into a live well and take them back to the hatchery. So, the 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 first two chambers that they go through—that's something you don't, you guys don't check those ones, or you just they just always no. in the big one. Yeah, generally they they come through to the the last chamber pretty quickly. Um, Pontotuning Lake right now and Tamarack Lake back in the day had populations that were so high that sometimes the first chamber or the last chamber, I guess, depending on how you look at it, will be still full of muskies. We'll actually be able to look back into the second chamber and see that there's still some in there. So we'll net all the fish out. We'll zip it back up and drop it down and come back in 15 minutes, and those fish will move through and we can get the rest of them out. Hmm. You're wow. tricking them. Very cool. <laughs> Okay, so now you. How many places are you getting the fry from in in the state? Are they all coming from 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 Pomatuning? Mostly, they do come from Pomatuning. From Linesville, you know, we we've always just trapped Pomatuning for adult muskies. Uh, The line or the Union City Hatchery also has historically trap netted Edinburgh and Canada and Woodcock. Um, Some a little bit in Wilhelm, you know, in Tamarack back in the day. Um, and they have historically taken eggs. Um, this year, they're converting the Union City Hatchery is going to be converted over to a mussel hatchery, but we're still going to utilize those guys for trap netting a little bit. Um, and the, the key with that is that we want to, we don't want to limit our genetics very much. So we still want those guys to be able to go out and capture a few large females from Edinburgh or Woodcock, what have you, and uh, they'll transport those down to Linesville. We'll spawn them with whatever we caught out of Pimentuning that day. And then we'll take those back to those lakes. Sorry, did you call that a mussel? Yeah, you know, freshwater mussels, the clam-looking things. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. Like, I'm going there to show off. You're talking about me. Yeah. That's something that came out of the, the, you know, just the budget constraints of the last few years. Um, they, they're looking for ways to save money and there's a bunch of, there's a lot of federal money out there for raising freshwater mussels and uh, there's a couple, you know, when, when these big corporations get um, hit with hefty fines or pollution and stuff like that, uh, some of the restoration they'll have to do is put a, you know, $1.9 million into a fund for mussel restoration in these waterways. So that whole hatchery can be funded out of that, that money. And they'll mostly just raise freshwater mussels, but then we'll, I think we're planning on still using their ponds for some walleye production. And in the early spring, they're going to help us out with the trap netting. Like I said, that's mostly for the genetics. We don't want to, we don't want to limit ourselves to only getting female muskies from one place. Right mm-hmm. now. Okay. So you, you collect a, you know, the, the lion's share of the fish are coming out of Pomatuning, but you're, Correct. like you said, you're, you're sprinkling some of these other smaller lakes, which are literally right around mine and your houses and do those fish let's just say you get five females out of edinburgh and you're like these are the good ones and you take them down do those five then go back into that lake or do you lose track of them and just be like ah just put five back in there nope we always keep track of them um we we hold them separately the whole entire time they're held and uh 
actually, I don't even, we probably pay attention to that more than we actually have to, but um, we always have made really been very strict about making sure the fish that come out of a water go back to that water. Okay. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Cause I'll tell you that, that was an old, you know, thing that we guys talked about now, not in the last few years, I haven't heard it, but years ago, they're like, Oh, they took them all out of this lake and they put them all over here. I mean, yeah, they used to do like, that some. <laughs> you know, I, they have not done that since I've been in the fishing boat commission. Um, mm-hmm. and they haven't done it since anybody I've ever worked with has been in the fishing boat commission. So I can't speak to like back in the fifties and sixties, but in modern, <laughs> mm-hmm. in modern yeah, history, yeah. it has yeah. not happened. That does not and we, we also try to keep them in separate tanks and separate water. We don't. We try not to cross contaminate just for the biodiversity and you know infectious diseases yeah. aspect of it. You know, if something. Yeah. You know, we go through very rigorous testing procedures every year to make sure we're not putting anything out in the Pennsylvania waters that may have been exposed to something. So we don't want to expose other adults from Pymatuning to adults from Connie Lake or Edinburgh or Canada either. That's very neat. So, like, great, great to hear. Yeah, I mean, we're just going to be MythBusters today. So, <laughs> um, okay. So, so you, well, you, there's already like we, we, we've already done ten things that you could ask more questions on. So, like, yeah, let's try to go somewhere here. So. Okay. So, next thing, you got all this, all these eggs and stuff, and now you're just putting them in a jar and mixing them with a feather, right? Yep. Yeah, we, we've actually started um, improving on our genetics there a little bit. Um, this year, we built some different mechanisms to hold the males so that we're trying, we're, we're getting so good at raising muskies, we're getting efficient at it, that we could literally probably get all the eggs we needed from five or six females. And we try to be We've been pushing for more and more efficiency through the years because we there's a cost to holding handling these fish. You know, we're we're cognizant of that. You know, if we get in there and we're handling more fish than we have to, there's are old, they're long lived fish. We wipe their slime coats off. You know, it exposes them to disease. There is going to be a cost to us being in these lakes and doing these spawning procedures. We can justify that as long as we're putting more back into the resource than we're taking out and we're helping it more than we're hurting it. But that's something we try to keep in mind. But now we're, we're getting to the point where we're so efficient that we actually have to take more than we need just so we're not limiting the genetics. You know, if we only took six females and stocked those genetics all over the state, eventually we'd be opening ourselves up to where the, the species wasn't very adaptable. So the way we're dealing with that is we're actually taking more males. And when we get a big female, we'll take like four or 500 milliliters of eggs out of her. And then we'll stop. We'll put two males milk in with those eggs. Then we'll finish spawning that female into a separate jar and put two additional males in there. So now we have... You know, literally, we can do like eight different combinations of genetics out of one fish, where in the past we would do maybe two males with the whole group if we had enough males on hand. Sometimes we only had enough males, we were just doing one-to-one, so then we might have a whole season where you only have 12 different combinations. So mm-hmm. now we're trying, to, we're trying to drastically improve the amount of genetic combinations we have in our eggs. That's also improved, we see the improved quality of our eggs. Because you can picture, once we get all these eggs out of a fish, we put them on our jars, just the way you're talking about. Um, we disinfect them, so just in case that fish brought anything with it out of the lake, uh, the eggs are disinfected with an iodine solution that takes any pathogens off the outside of the egg, and we do it during the water hardening process. So as soon as these eggs are touched, as soon as they're 
come out of the female and expose the water or yeah, expose the water they start absorbing water so we put them in iodine during that period so they suck a little bit of that iodine under the inside of the egg so that disinfects any pathogens that could have been passed from the female down to the offspring then we put them on our jars and uh after about seven days the ones that didn't get fertilized or anything that had a genetic abnormality and wasn't isn't going to produce will turn white and die and the other ones will be nice and orange still um, so since we've been doing the different genetic combinations, we've seen those IUPS is what we call it, that IUP percentage from green egg to eyed egg has increased quite a bit. Because in the past, if you had a bad combination between a male and a female, that could have been an eighth of your total egg count take. And now by including extra males in there, um, there's a less of a chance of having a bad combination between a male and a female. You wow. said a mouthful oh, right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many? How many? How many eggs are, are coming out of a nice, nice size, big female? Yep. How many eggs? Yeah. We actually, um, we actually won't even spawn the real big females anymore. Like if you get a fifty-inch female, we'll yeah. just really easily take her out of the net and put her back in the water. We don't want to hurt those fish, and they don't produce very good eggs for us. So as once they get to that size, our best producers are the fish in the forty-two to forty-five inch range, and they usually give us about sixty to seventy thousand eggs each. But they're very. Wow. It's, that's a very variable that um, yeah. average. You yeah. know, some females that you think would just <laughs> didn't give us a ton of eggs, they just don't. And some little girls that you don't think are going to give us very much give us a lot. So it's it's a, they're as different as people are. Okay. Sixty thousand yeah. eggs. And, 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 caviar. <laughs> you're talking about pounds, many like pounds. That would be oh, equivalent of pounds of eggs. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, we we measure them in quarts. So if you picture like a quarter mm-hmm. of strawberries, a really really big female will give us two two and a half quarts. That's a lot of strawberries. Wow. So how many <laughs> how many how many pounds would you estimate six feet? Yeah, it's probably you know three pounds, four pounds, three four pounds. Man, that's like oh, that's interesting. So, so I, I want to back up real so quick. So when people when they're all when they're all like when you catch that fish in in uh, in March in the springtime when people say they're all stuffed with eggs, um when they're getting rid of 60,000 of them, it accounts for about like five, per, five pounds on the fish. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's cool. That, that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. Cause I always, I'm always wondering like, Oh, I'd, I'd love to see this fish stuffed with eggs. And then release <laughs> it. If you get like a big one, I wonder what it looks like. Maybe five pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's not that big a deal. when a fish that size, but it definitely, they, they definitely look that's what four, that's what you know, that's what I'm going to think now from when I'm releasing like a really big one. And I'm like, I wonder what this looks like with eggs. I'll just add <laughs> about five pounds now. Five pounds. Yeah. 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 So, okay. I want to back up because you said something really, <laughs> you said it and I caught it and I'm like, I got to sit back and let this, this whole thought play out. So you said that you could essentially with five females have enough eggs to stock the entire state. That's correct. Okay. So I'm going to paint, I'm going to kind of go off on this. So any animals in, in the, in the, in the wild, even trees, their life goal is to reproduce one, maybe two to keep their species alive. Mm -hmm. You can essentially stock 
one fifth of the state with one of them. Right. That's like hitting the jackpot for that fish. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah, I just spread yeah, my yeah. genes. My genes are my genes are going on. And yeah. every <laughs> single body of water, there's a good chance that my offspring is going to be going in there. Right. That is an evolutionary and, you know, win. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things we, we, like I said, with the genetic diversity, though, we don't want to spread a single female offspring too far. You know, we want there to be, make sure there's a lot of different genetic combinations in there. And, um, but it's a little different than animals, too. If you think about, you know, white-tailed deer genetics and when the, when a button buck gets through his first year, they chase him off and he, he'll disperse up to two to five miles and find his own new home territory. And that's how their genetics get moved around, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, Vance has yet, okay, I got to fill you in, Jared. Vance has completed his third year of hunting and he has yet to shoot a doe and you've shot like nine bucks. <laughs> Unfortunately, kill a lot of buttons. He gets them when they're trying to move on to that next area. They just never quite make it. You ain't stepping foot off of this land. You're not moving through here, buddy. Oh, boy. Okay. Not if I can. No, but that's it. All right, so okay, white-tailed deer, the the buck spread. Now what? So anyhow, my point was that it, in the, the fish world, a little bit different, you know, because if you if you have a population of fish in a lake, they're not dispersing anywhere. They're not. There's nowhere they can move to or get away from. They over time they become more and more perfectly adapted to that particular water. Um, so fish is a little bit different. It's not where you know they're going to become weak over a period of time, you know, um, but we still want to make sure there's enough diversity out there that a certain, a certain genetic combination might do better in a particular water body than another particular water body. But it's not quite as critical as it is with, you know, animals. So, so I guess kind of like, I'm going to try to wrap this one up in, in this package here. So let's just say you have an isolated lake. There's only feeder streams. Nothing really goes out of it. After so many years, I don't know, X amount of years, those fish are going to have like the the best genetics are going to, essentially the family tree is just going to bottleneck down to yep. this. Is They're the, pretty much all twins. They're pretty much identical fish that are exactly diverse or genetically programmed for that water to succeed in that water body. And that's, that's you know, so that right, if you like have a bluegill population that's been in a lake for hundreds and hundreds of years, so all those fish are identically the same, you know, because they haven't had any new genetics brought into them. But it doesn't become a problem like it would in people or or deer, um, because their their environment's not changing either. They're they're adapted to what they're supposed to be in that water body. You know, if it's a dark water or it's a weedy, it's a lot of weeds. There's not a lot of weeds, or you know, they're they're perfectly adapted to that water body and, and that doesn't like mess it up to where they they come out with like two tails and three eyes it it's no just... because the, the genetics is uh complicated enough with uh, as long as there's different males and different generations um 
it, I mean, I'm sure that stuff happens. You know, we see it in even in our trout spawning and stuff. You know, we see ones that have two heads and curly tails and stuff. And there's some of that that happens, um, but it's a very small scale. Okay, so I got to ask the questions. You got a double-headed trout. Do you mm-hmm. just kind of pick that up and throw it in the weeds, or, or what do you do with it? Do you just feel we bad? We it in the lid. Wouldn't that be cool to stock one of those? Oh, <laughs> picture yeah, if you got it to breed, yeah. and all of a sudden you just Look got these caught, double yeah. headers. It would be twice as easy to catch a double-headed fish. That's what I keep telling people. We should be trying to we should be trying to breed those so that we could make fishermen more successful. That's right. And everyone would just not make up lies about stuff. <laughs> so. Okay, so no, but that's but really good stuff. so as as you guys are sprinkling around these genetics, which is actually kind of like anti nature, but it's actually just you're shotgunning all these genetics on all these lakes because yeah. how, how okay I'm just getting ahead of myself. How successful do you think these muskies would spawn on some of these bodies of water around here? And I'm very blanketing these statements. Some of these bodies of water. Yeah, and uh, I can actually answer that fairly well. Um, in most Pennsylvania waters, there's little to no natural reproduction, um, especially in inland lakes with no feeder streams. Um, that's because, and it's, it's the same. The same is true for walleyes, and that's why we're those are our two biggest stocking programs in the warm water hatcheries. Those fish um, are just broadcast spawners. So they, when they want to lay their eggs, they just cruise the shoreline until they find proper habitat. Um, like with the walleyes would be some gravel or the muskies would be a nice little shallow, low weedy bed. And they just blow their eggs out and just leave them there. You know, they don't tend to nest. They don't hang them up. They're not sticky eggs like a perch that they hang up on the vegetation. They just blow them out on the bottom and they swim away. Um, the problem with Pennsylvania waters is, is they're very, very fertile. You know, you look at above these waters, they look kind of brown. Um, you can only see maybe four or five inches down into them and your hand disappears if you put your hand in the water. That's not dirt or mud. That's, um, that's organic matter. That's phytoplankton, little single cell plants and stuff that's it's a good thing for the water it means they're fertile but what it means what i tell people all the time is if you take a dinner plate and go set it on the bottom of that that lake and come back the next day there'll be like an inch of stuff that's settled out of that water and that tends to just smother the eggs that were just laid somewhere and not tended in a nest so things like bluegills and bass that tend to nest they do fine things like perch that lay them up on vegetation they do fine but walleyes and muskies that just blow them on the bottom they all those eggs get smothered in the muck um and if you think about lakes that historically they're you know, way back you go back to like our grandparents time in lakes that guys used to guys used to fish for muskies in most of them have a big feeder stream you know um if they can run up into the streams and uh, lay their eggs, they'll still just broadcast their eggs in any suitable habitat, but the moving water helps keep those eggs cleaned off a little bit that they will get some hatching. And that's why the big rivers like the Allegheny do get some natural reproduction. Um, but any, a lake like, um, a lake like Woodcock or even uh, Edinburgh, you know, I think back in the day, Edinburgh got some natural reproduction because there was more, there was more access to French Creek, you know, but now with the dams the way they are and stuff, those fish are kind of cut off. So there's no natural reproduction in these lakes anymore. So 99% of the fish in all inland lakes in Pennsylvania are stocked fish. And okay. So 
like some of the small rivers, like I, I really like French Creek. There is a better chance that I, there could be successful spawn, spawning in French Creek than let's just, we'll pick on Edinburgh. Yep. Because of the moving water keeping Debris off these eggs. Absolutely. Okay. So that That's neat. Um, so practically all these fish are here because of the hatchery. Correct. And, and that's, you know, we, we really haven't come out and asked someone this, and that's why there's no closed season on muskie fishing now. It, it wasn't always that way. Yeah, right, because there's, there's really no reason to protect them during, any, that, during that period. Okay. I just wanted to hear it from a guy that actually works there. I kind of knew the answer already, but... Yep. It, um, all right, so now you guys have all of these eggs mixed up. And you and you use a big feather because a feather is better than a wooden spoon. <laughs> no, there's actually lots better options. But we use the feather because it's that's what the old guys did, and we like the we like traditions. Plus, we like to go kill turkeys, so it gives us a reason to go get some turkeys. I thought you go grab a ah. goose. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, killing the, turkeys. <laughs> the turkey feathers are they're nice and soft. They keep the eggs stirred up, and uh, yeah. they don't they don't harm the eggs at all. You know, the eggs are actually pretty fragile at the very beginning. Um, and the feathers do a nice job of keeping them stirred up. Okay. We just like the sentiment. We like the sentimental value of it. All right, keeping tradition alive. I like it. <laughs> so, you guys got them all mixed up. Now, what do you do? You yep. set it on the on the windowsill and hope they hatch. <laughs> yep. So, so after we disinfect the eggs, we uh, we take the eggs and put them in our egg battery jars. If people haven't seen those, they're like a about an eight inch diameter jar about a foot and a half tall and we have 32 of them lined up um on like a on two sheets of plywood that are you know four foot by eight foot and there's a manif a water manifold with a two inch pvc pipe up above it with valves so each jar has its individual valve that gives it water so we have about a gallon a minute of water flowing through there and that just that's the eggs water supply and oxygen supply for the next 14 days it takes um the time it takes an egg to hatch is largely based on the temperature, but um, uh, we always, in the springtime, we match our water temperature to whatever's happening in the wild. We have the capability using our boiler at the hatchery to heat our well water. So we have well water coming in, it runs through a UV filter, kills any pathogens that might be in it, then it runs through a heat exchanger attached to our boiler that actually heats the building, and it heats that water up, to, and we have mixing valves that we can set that temperature or whatever we want it to be at. Usually, we start around 50 degrees, and as the season warms up, we'll warm it up a little bit. But, you know, at 50 to 55 degrees, it, it's pretty consistently that it takes about 14 days for those eggs to hatch. Hmm. And uh, once we see the eggs start hatching, you know, every every day we go in there, we stir the eggs up a little bit, and but pretty much we just let them sit there. Um, but once we see a couple eggs start popping, um, we'll we'll take those eggs off of those jars and we'll um, we'll spread them out in floating baskets with uh, like mosquito netting on the bottom of them, and that just leaves them. So we don't put them on the bottom of the tanks, but they're in a floating basket in the middle of the water column, and we can spread those eggs out really nicely, not on top of each other. Then we'll bump the water temperature up a couple degrees, and that'll encourage all the eggs to hatch very quickly so by the, if we see some hatching in the morning we'll spread them out bump the water temperature up and by the time we leave in the evening those will all be all the eggs will be hatched so then uh 
when when any fish is comes out of the egg, it's born with a yolk sac. You know, it kind of looks like they just it looks like the fry came out of the egg, but still stayed attached to the egg. It basically looks like an egg attached to their belly. Mm-hmm. So they just they lay on the bottom and absorb that yolk sac. Um, and usually about day ten after hatch, that yolk sac will be totally absorbed and they'll start swimming up off the bottom looking for food. And that's when that's when the real work starts. You know. Go to PetSmart, um, get a bunch of tropical this flake. Is, this is all just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what are you this feeding them with that stuff? <clears throat> yeah, we're. Um, it's, just, it's, just, it's a commercial fish feed, um, but it's very, very small. It's almost like dust. You know, and like when I came back, when I came into the Fish and Boat Commission back in 2007, we were just learning how to convert muskies onto dry feed. And it hadn't, it's something that hadn't been done very successfully yet. We've had, we had some luck here and there. Um, other, most other states have given up on it. You know, this is what something that other states would come to conventions and everybody talk about how they're going to convert muskies onto dry food because most states are raising them with 80, 80 to $120,000 worth of minnows every year. Mm-hmm. And that gets very, very expensive. H- how much again? Most states are spending anywhere from 80000 to $120,000 a year on minnows. That's a lot of money. And those states are only usually raising about eight thousand to twelve thousand muskies to stock. So, and then twelve thousand. It's like a th- yeah. They're very expensive. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that's like a hundred dollars a trying, fish. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So continue. Um, and at the time, you know, our area fisheries managers in Pennsylvania were asking for around eighty thousand stockable fingerlings every year. But nobody was able to do that because we couldn't find enough minnows. Um, even at that time, the line before I was still at Union City, but the Lionsville Hatchery was raising some muskies, about ten thousand a year. Uh, They're getting them up to about six or seven inches, but that was solely on minnows. And what they would do is they would hatch these guys. As soon as they hatched them, they'd start going out in boats every single day out into the Palmer Tuning Sanctuary and saving minnow fry. And if they could get whatever amount of minnows they could gather in a day is how much they fed to the muskies that day. And they would do that every single day of the year until, you know, July, August came around and the minnows were too big. They couldn't catch them anymore. And then they'd be out of food and they'd have to stock their fish. That's why they were only six or seven inches. (laughs) And obviously that had enough success to get the muskie program going, but that's why, the Fish and Boat Commission and muskies groups always butted heads because muskie guys wanted more muskies. The Fish and Boat Commission had no way to supply anymore. Um, It wasn't because they were eating all the other fish. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Okay, so... It was just lack lack of ability to do it. Okay, and... Okay, so then... So the old-fashioned way, you go out, back-breaking labor, bring the minnows to them. This... What does the, the fish powder pellet that you're feeding these itty-bitty baby fish, what does that resemble? What would they naturally eat when they hatch in well, the wild? Yeah, generally when they hatch, they're going to start, the first thing they're going to eat is zooplankton, little, um, little, just little water bugs, anything that's feeding on the phytoplankton in the water. Um, almost, you know, everybody in, in uh, elementary school went out to, a pond and got a little drop of water, put it under a microscope and saw those little things swimming around. Yeah. That's the zooplankton. That's what they feed on. It must suck to be so, a zooplankton because everything eats you. <laughs> Absolutely. And muskies being the top predator, they'd love to hunt. They don't want to be fed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
most most fish that we raise would feed on that when they're first born, but they'll readily eat a dry food pellet if you put it in front of them. They just because they're hungry. The muskies will not do that. They'd rather starve to death than be fed. They want to hunt. So we went through years and years of having hundreds of thousands of musky fry in our tanks, but they'd all die. We couldn't get them to eat. And uh, we'd get it. We'd have enough success that we'd think we learned a few things and we'd try something again the next year. And uh, until we finally got the right recipe and the right recipe had a lot to do with the amount of fish in the tank, the, the density, the amount of flow going through the tank, the right temperatures to get their metabolism going, but not going so fast that we can't feed them fast enough. Just getting all that stuff in the right balance was the key. And then, uh, the real trick is we use, we hatch at the same time. We're using brine shrimp. You know, everybody's always had hatched sea monkeys when they were a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's a little sea monkey. That's what brine shrimp is. We'll hatch big batches of these brine shrimp. And then first thing in the morning when we turn the lights on, um, we want these fish to learn when feeding time is. So we'll sprinkle in. We have uh, just like coffee cans full of brine shrimp. We'll just pour a little bit in the water. And as soon as we start seeing them peck at it, we'll sit there all day long with our pinches with our fingers just pinching in little bits of dry dry pellets and uh once they once they accidentally eat a few because they're eating it they're going after the shrimp so aggressively and we keep them crowded enough that they're watching their buddies eating and they want to eat too so they're not really looking at it and really digesting or thinking too much about what they're going to eat they just want to eat the first thing that pops in front of them that that feeding frenzy is the key to getting them to eat a few of those pellets. And once they do it, they'll recognize it as food and then they take off. Um, so after years of playing with that, now we're able to get about 80% of the fish that we hatch converted onto dry food. And that was a major discovery. And we, we travel around the country giving presentations to all kinds of other states about how, how we were able to do that. What was that thing called again? The brine shrimp? Brine, brine. shrimp. Brine. B-R-I-N-E. What color are they? They're orange, actually. That's the next name of the bait we'll make. <laughs> the, brine the color. <laughs> brine shrimp. There you go. Yeah, and and that's going to... So so you're um, kind of like just making these like Pavlov's dogs. Yep, you're you're getting much. them used to lights turn on, it's time to feed, yep. and... In the first couple of days, we'll give them some brine shrimp and then try to trick them with the food. And then after a couple of days of that, we'll turn on the lights and then we'll just start dropping the dry food. And we'll do that for about two hours and try to get them all eating. And then we'll put a little bit of brine shrimp in just to get them satisfied to make sure they're all healthy. And we'll do that for about the next 40 days. Um, and event, about day seven, actually, is when we'll turn on the lights, we'll put it, we'll throw some dry food in there, and they all start going crazy for it. So, but if we go to, if we get to day seven and we're not doing that, we get worried, but we've been having pretty good luck with it. Perfect. Okay. So after day seven, there, that, that's like the cutoff, that, that the training of it is having, now is it, you, you want not too many fish but enough fish per tank. Right. Getting yeah, the density and the, the density per tank is very, very critical. Um, especially, and it's actually that way through the whole life cycle, but it changes quite a, quite a bit. But at the beginning, they have to be 
they look like a, a big swarm of mosquitoes. You know, we'll hatch them in a big, long, 1,200-gallon concrete tank. But once they're up, once they absorb their yolk sac and swim up, we actually crowd them down in the very end of the end of the tank so that we get that density just the way we want it. Um, and it's they're pretty thick in there. We don't want them being able to, we want them to eat out of competition and react reaction. You know, we want them to see their buddies eating and want to eat too. So they're just going to eat the first thing that falls past that guy who's sitting above them. You know, if they're too, if we have them in there too thin, they have time to swim around and look at it. And, you know, they'll actually follow it all the way to the bottom, waiting for it to wiggle a little bit. If it would wiggle, they'd, they'd nail it, but they'll follow it all the way to the bottom and watch it. They'll sit there when it hits the bottom, they'll sit there and stare at it, waiting for it to move. And if it doesn't move, they won't eat it. You should have like speakers in there. Yeah, <laughs> have speakers in there and just have it hit like a, a frequency note for, you know, two seconds, and, and it'll just wiggle ever so much. Make that's them incredible. solidate. Yeah. yeah, It's incredible that uh, you see, like, their natural instincts at yeah. in a little, little speck of the fish. Yeah, it's they're incredible. Already, like, they're already waiting for that. They're already reaction. following. Like, already following <laughs> and already hitting off of reaction. Absolutely. You know, not like the feeding window that we're always talking about. And Todd always says that, you know, a lot of the fish are pretty much all the hits are coming off of a reaction. A reaction. That's right? just crazy that you're watching these little things. That'd be so fun just to follow it all the way down. As soon as it wiggles, boom, yep. it takes it. That's just incredible. <laughs> about how long are these are these muskies at this point? Um, They're tiny. I guess the part that you can visibly see is about a quarter of an inch, and then their their tail is pretty invisible at that point. You know, they you can see right through these guys when they when they eat a when they feed on brine shrimp for about twenty minutes. You can actually see an orange ball in their bellies, so you can wow. see right through them. So they're pretty small. That's they might be pushing half an inch. Okay, so but by that by that day seven when we when they start eating the dry food before we get into brine shrimp by Day seven and eight, you'll start to they'll actually have a belly. Every fish in the tank will have a belly, and that's how we, we know we're good to go. And they, they were going to eat the dry food, and that's when we make a move from those concrete tanks. We'll take 25,000 fish, and we'll put them in our, a smaller round tank. Our round tanks are beneficial because they're much deeper, so it gives them a longer water column to be able to take advantage of the food we're feeding them. Um, plus it has a little we can we can adjust the current in the round tank so that we can get all the fish facing the same direction and then we can drop when we drop the food out of that's when we'll start using uh, mechanical feeders so we can place the feeders in a particular spot and then use the flow to position the fish right where we want them so when that food drops out of the feeder the flow takes it right through the group of fish okay And and having that having that set up perfectly is you know, we're, we're always thinking, talking about opportunities to feed, you know, at that stage. We want to make sure that if one of them gets hungry, they have the opportunity to find food and they don't have to look very far to find it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would like to make the assumption that you're not counting 25,000 exactly. You're just kind of <laughs> scooping and saying there's about 25,000. Yeah, we move, we move them by a weight displacement. Okay. So we'll use like a a half gallon beaker a 3000 milliliter beaker you know and we fill it up to a certain level and then uh actually we'll use a much smaller um like a little 
uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Just a little measuring spoon, you know, okay. that will measure a few milliliters. <laughs> then we'll we'll take um we'll take a, a net and scoop up some fry, and then we'll take a little plastic spoon and we'll put it put some fry into that little beaker until we get uh, five milliliters. Once it's five milliliters, we stop, and then we pour those into a bigger container, and then we pour them back into the tank while we count them out. So, and we do that over and over and over and over until we're confident we know how many fish are in one milliliter. So then once we know that, then we know, okay, so to get 25,000 fish in this round tank, we need 642 milliliters. So we'll do the same thing with the net and scoop them in and put them in a bigger beaker that has 1,000 milliliters of water in it, and we'll keep putting fry in there until it goes the water level moves up 642 milliliters and we know we have 25,000 fish in there. Yeah. That's a little more scientific than the bait shop guy. Give me a dozen minnows and he just scoops the net and flops it in a bucket. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, we're very, we're very picky about that too, you know, cause it's, it's important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, especially back when we were learning still, we we're always learning. We we're always looking to do different things, but we had to know how many fish we were starting with so that we could measure our success and we could try different things in these three tanks and something different in these three tanks and then know, be able to quantifiably tell which things, which way worked out better at the end of the year, you know? So if we weren't very precise on what we we're starting with, our, our results at the end, we're never going to, we were never going to learn anything. So we started off being very, very particular about those numbers and now we're still particular about them because we know that the, the density of the fish in that water is uh is very critical if we put we've even tried putting 30,000 even just going up to 30,000 fish um because the more fish you put in there the more fish you're going to get out so if we put 50,000 in there we could get you know 40,000 back out but the cannibalism rate goes up so fast because we can't we can't provide enough food to them fast enough you know there's too many there's too many fish at that point in the water and uh we can't offer enough feeding opportunities that if they get hungry enough they're just going to start eating their buddy mm-hmm. and once they start doing that they won't stop um and then once we get the to blood. Learn, yeah once they get up to the two three four inch range once you have if we don't get all those cannibals out of there they'll, they'll decimate our whole population so we, we really we really try to be very cognizant of keeping those densities at the right level and making sure everybody has good feeding opportunities so they don't feel like they have to do that. Yeah, then you'll be faced with a decision like, do we stock 10,000 normal muskies or do we stock 10 super tankers because they ate all of them? <laughs> <laughs> Robo muskies. That's right. <laughs> so okay, they're in the tank and they're st- they're still knowing that pellets are food, yeah. and and they just kind of go in this whirlpool tank for a, till when? Uh, we we move them to the whirlpool tank or about day seven or eight, and then they stay in there until day forty five. On day forty five, we that that's kind of the cutoff point when we know these fish are eating dry food very very well. They're on to they're eating actually eating big pieces of fish food at that point. They haven't had any brine shrimp in, you know, 20 or 30 days. So anything that's still alive at that point, we can, we call them because those are our converted fish. Those are fish that are going to eat dry food. We can do whatever we can move them around. We can play with them. They're still going to go back to eating dry food at that point. So that's when we take them out of the whirlpool tanks, put them back in the big concrete tanks. So they have more room to spread out. Because that's that's at about that they're about two two and a half inches at that point, 
um, they start getting a little bit territorial. So we'll, we'll notice as soon as we move them out of those tanks and into the concrete tanks, they spread out so the whole entire tank and every fish in that tank has exactly the same amount of water around them as every other fish. It's incredible. Like you couldn't, you couldn't do a math problem to make them spread out this identically, you know, but they don't want anybody too close to them. Um, so if we put too many fish in there, they don't eat as good. If we don't put enough fish in there, they don't eat as well. Keeping those densities just to the right, so they have the right competition factor is how we progress. Once we learned how to convert them onto dry foods, our next goal was to raise them to 10 inches by the fall. Because that's what every fisheries managers always wanted was to build a stock of 10 inch muskie. And we were stocking six, seven inches, you know. Um, even once we got good at converting them on a dry food, you know, we had a, our first year, we, we stocked 120,000 muskies in the state of Pennsylvania. That was back in like 2011. We were really proud of that, you know. And then, you know, I think Larry Hines was one of the guys that said, okay, well, now we got to get them bigger. And we're like, geez, what do you, you guys always want something? You keep moving the goalpost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now we're like, okay, we got to learn how to get 10 inch fish, you know, you know, common, common thought at that time was we're, there's just not enough growing season. We're just not going to be able to get them there on a the dry food diet. We need minnows or something. So we would, we did some experiments feeding, you know, half minnows and half dry food. And, um, and even recently at Linesville, we did a study where we, we fed exclusively minnows and dry food because, we wanted to prove that this is true and it is that the minnows do not give them any additional growth over the, the feeds we're using now. Um, they do convert the feed better. And when I say that, you know, like when we, we talk about feed conversion, we talk about how much food, how many pounds of food we have to put into the water to get a pound of growth out of the fish. So if we put a pound of minnows in the water, they do convert almost 100% of that into growth. So if we put a pound of minnows in the water, they grow about a pound of fish, a pound of weight, which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, for the dry food, it's about two pounds for each pound that they gain. Um, so it's much more inefficient with the dry food, but it's way cheaper. You know, the minnows we're paying $6 a pound for, and the dry food's 86 cents a pound. So we can afford to pay put two pounds of feed in there to get a, a pound of growth where the minnows we can't even afford to keep them help buy enough minnows to keep them healthy so um there isn't too much of an advantage by feeding minnows we still feed our fish some minnows um the first time we do it is so shortly after the period we're at on our timeline here we move them to the concrete tanks um when they get to about four inches they're big enough to uh, eat the smallest feeder minnows that we can purchase. Um, we get everybody, we get all the muskies a, a big round of minnows. It's usually only a three or four day feeding. You know, we'll fill, load those tanks up with minnows and just let them gorge themselves on minnows for a few days. Um, and it's more for, uh, it changes their behavior, it changes their color, and it changes their health. Um, if we don't give them that initial, that early shot of minnows, I think, I don't think their immune system develops properly and we'll struggle with um, disease throughout the whole season we're getting we're pretty good about early diagnosis of disease and treating them so we can keep them healthy but it's a struggle the whole year but if we give them that early dose of minnows they tend to be healthier for the whole entire season plus for some reason they they all be after they get those minnows they turn darker and they become much much more aggressive um 
up until that point, when we walk down there in the mornings, we try we throw some throw some handfuls of feed at them. They're kind of spooky, you know. They mm-hmm. they see us coming and they don't they kind of shy away to the edges of the tanks. After they have those minnows, they become almost like trout. They they become so aggressive that they don't care if we're standing there or not. We can stand there all day and throw handfuls of food at them, and they'll just keep eating. It's a, it's the strangest thing, but we're just going with it because it works. But once we get them feeding that aggressively, we get them that early shot of minnows, they start feeding that aggressively. That's our goal for the next few months is just we'll have two or three guys that their job is to hand feed those muskies as much as they'll possibly eat over the next couple months. And pretty much you're just the guys that are hand feeding them because before you said you had mechanical feeders. Yep, we still have the mechanical feeders going because we want to have feeding opportunities all the time. But the hand feeding is a lot more precise. You know, the feeders drop feed in a certain spot, and we put structures in there. We put, like, uh, chicken wire circles, and we try a bunch of different things to try to get the fish to congregate underneath the feeder. Um, But we never, if we leave the fish out that are hanging out down the corners or over on the sides, if we leave them out, they fall behind. They become another source for a fish to try to, Converts cannibalism so we want to try to keep all the fish at the same size um so that the hand feeding helps with that um plus it's more of that more of those reaction strikes too when we throw the feed we we try to throw it from a distance and when it hits the water the fish just jump on it and they, i don't even think they know what it is yet but when we're trying to maximize growth we're what we're talking about in the, our break rooms when we're sitting around brainstorming on these things is how do we get each fish to eat two more pellets a day you know, because it's all about, their growth is all about calories. It's about calories and the water temperature. That's how they convert to growth. So when we want to get our 8-inch fish up to a 10-inch fish, we were racking our brains on how the heck we're going to get them, each fish to eat two more pellets. And, if, and then once we get them to eat those two more pellets, then we're racking our brain. Is that two extra pellets or is that two pellets they were going to eat after we left? You know, so it was a very complicated scenario. But uh, eventually, with enough hand feeding, we got our fish up to 10 inches in the fall. And that's when that was, you know, so, and then, so this is 2019. So, 17. So that was probably 2013 that we hit our 10 inches in the fall for the first time. And then uh, we did that consistently for the next four or five years. And then we started hearing good results from the anglers on, wow, whatever you guys are doing, we're starting to see more fish, you know? Um, so, at, at that let, let, let's 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 slow down a bit here. So <laughs> you said keep talking. I, I, I told you to keep talking, <laughs> but I'm just like, so this hand feeding is this to more yep. target fish that might not be as you guys might be seeing it eating as much. So you're kind of like throwing them at that fish. You're you're babysitting yep. twenty five thousand fish in this tank. Absolutely, we're trying to get every we're we're literally throwing the fish at throwing pellets at every fish in there and trying to make sure they're all eating, make sure nobody's getting left behind. And then, so to, is there like, Oh, there's enough pellets on the bottom of this tank. Stop throwing for now. Or no, we go by more of their behavior. You know, uh, once we, when we first start our feeding, you know, hand feeding it, whether it's in the morning or right after lunch or something like that, 
obviously when that when that food hits the water there's a lot of activity as the fish rush, rush over and hit the feed um as you after about an hour of that it slows down a little bit so we start throwing smaller pinches you know instead of having a handful of feed maybe we'll have 15 pellets in our hand you know and we'll throw that more towards targeted areas um and the nice thing about these fish um, once they once they feel satisfied once they're once they're not hungry anymore they tend to group up in a ball we call it stacking so they'll just they'll, they'll migrate away from the walls away from the bottom away from the top they'll be right in the middle of the water column usually it's in between the feeders and they'll all be really close to each other they'll be right stacked on top of each other and those ones you can throw feed at them as much as you want they won't eat but so that we know we can which ones to target we target the ones that aren't stacked yet and uh, we, our goal is to try to get them all stacked up. And once they once they do that, we'll give them a little break. We'll go mow some grass for an hour or something, then come back and do it all over again. Hmm. Well, this is so. I mean, this is incredible. Days to be all time, and you get the musky fish every day and all summer, <laughs> and that's a great job. Your job is really cool too. I'm telling you, that is a. This is just cool stuff. Oh, I love it. Really good I mean, stuff. Yeah. It's incredible to be able to wake up in the morning and be excited to hurry up and get to work because we're doing something really cool with the muskies that day, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> so, so so, these fish just kind of, you, you hand feed them for a while. Then when, what's the next step after the hand feed? So they stay in there until about day 70, which usually gets us to about the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're getting too crowded. So at that point, we would have to cut down our numbers. Um, but what we did at Lionsville, and the reason we're moving the whole program there now, is there was an old series of raceways in the back of the hatchery that um, nobody that I ever worked with even remembered them ever using. They were old and dilapidated. The walls were falling in. Um, so what we did is we rehabbed those. We poured concrete. We chipped out all the bad pieces and patched it all up and we put up bird netting over it and then we did some plumbing projects to be able to get our nice warm pond water out to there so now on right around the fourth of july we moved the fish from their hatch house tanks out to those big giant raceways so there's a series of five basically when i say a raceway it's just what you think it is it looks like a like a trout hatchery raceway it's a big long 100 foot long concrete raceways and there's five of them right next to each other so all together it's about sixty thousand gallons of water out there um and then we generally we move about sixty thousand fish out there uh one fish per gallon is the density we want to be at at that move um so that gives them a lot more room to grow you know, anybody that's ever had an aquarium knows the fish kind of grow to their surroundings. So we that gives them a huge area to be able to expand into. And the other nice thing is once we move them out there, um, instead of using uh, mechanical feeders that just drop feed straight down, we've gone to, we've, we hang broadcast feeders way up top on the rafters um and these things are just they look like the square boxes that you see advertised for deer feeders out in fields you know they're just a big box that we fill up with fish food it's got a little spinning thing underneath it with on a motor and we put those on timers so that every 10 minutes those things start spinning and that it broadcasts that those pelleted food all over the raceway so it looks like it's raining out there so every inch every fish in there every corner is getting fish food dropped on it just like we were hand feeding 
So at that point, we've virtually eliminated our hand feeding because if we go out, we do still go out there and check on them. We'll throw some hand feed, you know, throw some food by hand just to see how they react. But if we see them reacting to it and not being stacked up, all I do is feed them every eight minutes instead of every 10 minutes. We're still, we're still the mechanical, those broadcast feeders are distributing the food better than we can by hand. So that, that's been a real time saver for us. And then they, so and then they'll stay there. They'll stay there for the rest of the year. Actually, they're still there, you know. So we spent, you know, five years getting them, putting them out there and getting them to 10 inches by fall. And once we started seeing really good results with that, that's where recently we've gone to. We just said, well, if 10 inches is good, 12 to 14 inches has to be even better. So now we're holding those fish through the winter, stocking them the following June as 12 to 14 inch yearlings instead of 10 inch fingerlings. And these fish are huge. This last this 2018 was the first year of the massive that we've stocked yearlings on a huge basis like this. We've we've always done a thousand here or two thousand there, um, and mostly those were st- tagging studies to s- compare the fall stocked fish to the spring stocked fish. Um, but 2018 was the first year that we stocked 34,000 12-inch muskies out in the waters of Pennsylvania, and. Uh, it was more impressive than I thought it was going to be. I mean, when we were putting these things out, I mean, they're, the girth on them is like nothing I've ever seen in a muskie before. It just, you can feel as you're letting them go, this thing is going to live. The only thing that can eat it is a state record bass or another muskie. <laughs> or yeah. a pike. But Yeah. So, okay, yeah. so they're going to hang out there. So right now, does that freeze up? Or do you just keep the water going to where, like last week when it was in the negatives, things are still open? Yeah, it it will freeze. It will freeze over on the top. Um, you know, the weather, when the weather stayed, it was even in the forties. It was when the sun was coming out. I, I would take an afternoon once in a while, leave my office, and I'd go out there and I was hand feeding them dry food still, and they were still eating. Um, but we we don't have a way to heat the water out that far you know, away from the hatchery. So the water, it does get a skim of ice on top. And once it starts icing over, um, we just we supply them with minnows to get them through the year. They don't need a whole lot. You know, their, their water temperature on those really cold days, the water temperature out there was down to 35. So they're, they're pretty dormant that time of year. Um, we just we just keep a healthy amount of minnows in there so they can eat whenever they want to stay healthy. And then uh, as soon as the water warms up in the spring, um we'll do we'll be out there testing them with our hand feeding and once we see them really start taking off on the hand feeding we'll just put the feeders back up and we're off and running so right now they're just on autopilot when when things start you know ramming and jamming again is it like you know you hear some like beef they you finished it on grain only on this do you like finish them on minnow minnows is it yep yeah and um like I said, it, it it's nice because we get that hundred percent conversion to to growth. So the more minnows, you know, the muskies Inc. has been very good to us with donating money, and they, you know, they do spaghetti dinners and stuff just to raise money to buy minnows. And any any muskie club or muskie anglers that can raise money to do that, that money goes into those minnows, and a hundred percent of the weight of those minnows that you purchase goes into the weight of the muskies that are coming back to Pennsylvania. So that's kind of a a cool thing you know mm-hmm. um plus um that it, it keeps their behavior more more wild more aggressive um everybody's you know seen the days when we 
back when I was stalking muskies from Union City, we'd put them at the boat ramp and they would just sit there. They wouldn't go anywhere. But it seems like the more the more minnows we feed them, the more likely they are to just swim off when we stalk them. They're just a little, I don't know, they just seem a little bit more wild um, than just the, the pure dry-fed muskies. There were actually two years in a row, and Todd probably remembers this. I launched my boat at my favorite boat launch. And I'm like, there's muskies everywhere. <laughs> and, and you know, they were all, you know, I'm going to probably say in that eight-inch range, and this is probably going uh-huh. back five years ago or something, maybe okay. more. Holy crap, probably more than that, five to eight years ago. And you could not catch them. You can't see them move, but they disappear. Like, I, I took my net. I'm like, I'm going to get me one of these. And, <laughs> but before you even, like, think about it, they're gone. You're like, where, where did they go? And they, they're perfectly camouflaged, but they were sitting ducks right there. Yeah. A whole right. host of them. Yep. But so now you got, now that you're doing this, because in 2018 was the first year you held these fish over. Right. And so now this year you're going to be getting mama and daddy muskies into the facility while you still have last year's babies. So now you're going to be like starting to really process fish. You're doing two things at once. Absolutely. And. The thought is, and, and I might butcher the numbers, you're going to be kind of stocking half or quarter the density of fish per per acre or per lake as you once were, but you're having a much better return. Is that the thought? Yeah, that's kind of the goal. Um, the, the stocking rates were kind of all over the place, but for the most part, um, historically, it was one, one fish per acre in all of Pennsylvania, but the brood lakes got two fish per acre. Okay. Now, there, there was a few exceptions in there, and I don't, I don't even know the backstories on how those got switched around. Um, but that's that was the baseline. That's where it all started from. Was one fish per acre. So Edinburgh was a 480 acre lake. It got 480 fish. Um, there was always, you know. But so now with the bigger fish, we're going to three quarters of a fish per acre, um, and that number came from some of the other states that were already stocking yearlings. That's what they recommended. They've seen good results with. So all of the lakes are getting three quarters of a fish per acre. But in order to make the cost of the yearling program the same as the cost of the fingerling program, we're going to only stock half of the lakes every year. So so instead of getting one one fish per acre every year, all the lake, all the waters of Pennsylvania, and that's pretty. That is standard now. It's every single water is getting 0.75 fish per acre. Every other and, year. And every other year, correct. So that's really like, I don't know, like 0.3 fish per acre. Point, you know, three eighths of a fish per acre. Right. So it's like 0.6 less than it was before. Right. Right. What, what time of year are those ones getting released? Now or then? Well, now, now the the yeah, um, one you held over. What time of year are you putting? Well, well, we're never. It's mostly going to be dictated by their size. Um, okay. We we like to. We're definitely going to want to get to the end of May because um, we want there to be as, a lot of forage out there. Because that's the other exciting thing about this is. And even when we were doing the tagging studies and stocking the exact same size fish in the fall and the size same size fish first thing in the spring, the spring fish did much, much better because it just makes more sense. You know, yeah. rather than sticking them out there and making them go through the whole winter 
before they find food, put them out there right when everything's spawning. So at the end of May is kind of the peak of when the minnows and the bluegills and everything is, there's lots and lots and lots of small forage out there for them. Um, yeah. So that would be the beginning of when we want to start stocking, but we're not going to stock them until they reach that 12 inch threshold, mm-hmm. um, which shouldn't be an issue. But these last couple of years, Mother Nature's been playing with us. You know, in 2000, you know, 2000, the spring of 2017, our spawn was 26 days later than the average. And yeah. in 2017, yeah. this year, in 2018, it was five days later than the late it, than how late it was last year. So we were five weeks behind um, yeah. before we even started. And at the end, when we're when these fish are in full grow mode, we're getting half an inch a week. So five weeks is two and a half inches. So if we yeah. can get a normal spring, we'll be stocking fourteen inch fish. Um, oh, wow. But right now, you know, with these late springs, we're we're just going to be happy to be in, in the twelve to thirteen inch range. Real um, quick, I'm, I, yep. I I I want to go way back here. What is so? Water temperature is what's. Yep. pumping the spawn up. The, the, the eggs are ready at, at, at certain water temps. Right. It's not time of year. No. Um, it, it's more by time of year, actually. Um, everything in nature is, is timed by photo period. So the length of the length of daylight. So pretty much on the second week of April every year, the, the amount of time the sun is up, so the time when the sun sets is exactly the same every year, and that's how nature times itself. The water temperature can speed that up or slow it down a little bit. Um, okay. It can make it more inconsistent. But that the, everything else being equal, it would be the exact same time every year. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's, if it's exceptionally cold, it could be delayed, and if it's exceptionally warm, it'll be moved up. It will delay it by a couple of weeks. Couple yeah. weeks. Okay. Yeah. 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 What temperature are you looking for? When, when you, okay, this is a yep. time to go. Fifty two is ideal. Fifty two. Yeah. Nice. So, and once it gets to sixty, we know it's too quick. If, yeah. if it gets to sixty, it's going to happen so fast that we're going to. It's going to be over within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So that's a little stressful time for you. It's, oh yeah, <laughs> it's trying to get that time. I mean, like once you kind of get through that, and you're like, okay, the hard part's over. But I mean, it's a whole hurdle of you know a bunch of hurdles to go through. But oh, the yeah. first one is if it's you don't have any eggs, you don't have any muskies. Absolutely, it's very stressful. Well, that happened like you were saying a couple of years ago. There, our club talked about it. There were some people in our club that are still involved with the fisheries. You know, guys you used to work with, and mm-hmm. and I, it, it was I from what I understand, it was wreaking havoc on you guys. It was like you got. It got warm quick, and right. then all of a sudden it went cold again, and they're like, we got some muskies that are ready, and we have some that aren't, and we have walleyes that we're trying to do, and they're not ready, but some are, and it yes. and that's challenge to catch we, the fish. That's exactly right true. You know, we, yeah. we, we keep hoping for a normal spring, but I don't, at this point, I don't even know what normal is anymore. You know? Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. Because it, it, if it's a good walleye year, it's going to be a bad, a bad musky year. Is usually how it works out. Because um, these springs, you know, 
11 years now where the, the water doesn't even freeze over. There's no ice fishing to speak of. Yep. You know, that really confuses the walleyes because they're, they're used to living in the dark for six months. So when they, when they get daylight thrown on them in January, they don't know what the heck to do, you know? And then in, yeah. and the yeah. water warms up in February, their eggs start developing. And then if we get a nice warm up in the spring, they're ready to go, you know, and they don't even know what time it is. So then yeah. once we get a nice warm spring like that, it's early. It's nice for walleyes because it gets them going, it gets them spawning. But then inevitably it's too early. You know, it's too early. Then we get that cold snap. The muskies started getting ready, but then the cold came and it just messes everything up. Yeah. And some of those fish just never recover. You know, they just, they just kind of, their body just shuts down. They don't, they never come back into spawning mode. They'll just absorb their eggs and figure out yeah, yeah, I'll spawn again yeah. next year. Yep. <clears throat> hmm. Now, wow. you know, I, I, we went really, really good on this, but I really wanted to get to the voluntary muskie permit or I, yeah. but before that, do you happen to have a rough figure about what each muskie costs to stock on the new program to kind of wrap up that whole cycle? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I don't, you know, um, I, I'm lucky enough that my, my regional manager works right across the office from me. He works out of the Linesville Hatchery, and I, I work very closely with him on developing those numbers. Um, but we were still in the process of wrapping up last year, and uh, I don't think he's quite compiled all those numbers yet. Um, but I think, I mean, if I had to... If I had to give an educated number there, it's going to be in the 5 to $6 range, somewhere around there. And it's, it's going to continue to come down um, as we get better in this program. You know, it's one of the, one of the really exciting things about moving the, the, the complete muskie program to the Linesville Hatchery is there's going to be less guys working on it. You know, in the past, we had Linesville and Union City doing all the trap netting, and then those eggs would get spread out between Linesville, Union City, the Pleasant Mount Hatchery, and the Tyonesta Hatchery. And each of those hatcheries had four or five guys working on these fish. So those, th that amount of, those salaries added up to the cost of that program. Okay. So then at the end of the year, people would, you know, the higher-ups would total look at guys' timesheets, because every day we fill out a timesheet. Uh, the fish culturists fill out what they spent their time working on that day. So at the end of the year, they pull those numbers together and figure out how who spent what species got what amount of time, and they put a cost to that. And that's where people started saying the muskie program was a million-dollar program, which seemed very, very expensive for the amount of anglers that were out there. You know, you heard yeah. that argument over the years. Um, now that we have all of the muskies at Linesville and we're getting more efficient at it, that we can, we can manage how much time we're spending on them so that, you know, the dry food every year, we spent, we spent about $17,000 on dry food for them last year and probably another $15,000. So most of that was donated, about $15,000 on minnows. So if we were not to raise muskies, if we were to stop raising muskies today, we would only save about $30,000. But when they talk about the cost of a program, they figure in all the, all the man hours, too, is how they got to that big million-dollar number. But now that we're only using a couple guys at Linesville, but we're also working on other species like walleyes and catfish and things at the same time, so our, our hours are spread out, 
that number is going to be drastically lower. You know, I'm thinking it's going to be more in a $200,000 program range here once you get everything ironed out, which is going to make a 30,000 fish much more reasonable, much more reasonable cost. So I'm just going to, I'm going to round numbers on this. So you spend about $30,000, $32,000 on food for 30,000 fish. That is extremely low, a buck a fish to get it from essentially nothing to 14 inches, 12, 14 inches. Right. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Because, you know, initially <laughs> it, it was... It was How long does it take for a trout to get that long? Just um, you would know. Well, 12, they're, they're a year and a half when we stock them for trout season, and they're, you know, the average of 11 inches there. So And they're a year and a half old. Right. Yeah. And they eat about $3 worth of food to get that big. <laughs> they eat like crazy. That's what I thought. Yeah. So earlier in the All show, yeah, earlier All in the show, how many people are fishing for them? You know. Oh yeah, there's a ton the of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them are fish we going to get into the musky tag now? We we are, but I wanted to kind of wrap up this. <laughs> well, I just have one more question. Okay, <laughs> we just are like just like throwing everything at this guy. I feel so bad, but uh. Oh, I could talk about this stuff all day. (laughs) Obviously, the netting and stuff is coming up soon. Yep. uh, In a couple months. Um, What are you seeing? Any of these muskies that you're getting in the nets that are uh, just tanks? Give us, like, some type of fishing story about that. Uh, One, (laughs) have have you seen one over 50 in the nets? Is it a rarity in these places that you're doing the brood stocking uh, in what was the biggest one you've ever seen? We'll just, oh, you know. It, yeah, it's actually not that rare. Um, you know, Scott County kind of tuning, we'll probably see 12 to 15 fish over 50 inches every year. Um, and that's average. I mean, sometimes we'll see a lot more than that. But that, that's a solid, non-exaggerated number. You know, there's there's plenty of them out there. Um, the biggest one i ever seen was out of Canadota Lake. I remember... I was probably probably my third year as a fish culturist, and uh, I thought it was a different kind of fish because I saw its head and I thought it was an alligator. I mean, it just it was huge, and it ended up being uh, fifty four inches. And uh, at that point, we we weren't smart enough not to bring them back to the hatchery. We actually didn't end up spawning that fish because she was so big. Uh, we just took her back the next day. But we had her in the hatchery for a little while and got some pictures of her. I don't know. I wish I had those pictures. Um, but overnight, she puked up a 19-inch walleye. Oh, my goodness. No kidding. <laughs> yep. That's where all those walleye are going. <laughs> she was huge. She was incredible. Um, I can't believe did it. Did she have so a big... Go ahead. Legitimate fifty-four incher. Yep, out of Canada to Lake. A couple questions about all, that. And all our all our listeners that are uh, not from this little uh, nugget of Western Pennsylvania and Northwest Pennsylvania, Canada is like you could almost throw a football across it. It's like two hundred and fifty right. acres. And Nerf football. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy. Um, you could <clears throat> definitely shoot a button buck across that lake. Yeah, okay, we yeah. and we saw a lot of big fish in there. You know that that, that water, that lake is so, has so much depth and so much, um, you know, the, the temperatures stratify over the winter so that they can grow all year round. You know, 
obviously much slower, but you know, they get down in those deeper sections and it's, it's 40, 50 degrees down there year round. Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's, huge. Growth going on. that's huge. If you can remember details on that fish, did it have a really nice tail on it or was it like rotted <laughs> off and it might've lost an inch or two? <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. What I do remember about is the color. The, the other interesting thing about now that I've seen a lot of muskies out of different waters is how a lot of the muskies from a certain water will look similar, but they all look different between the waters. You know, those Canadoto fish are always like really dark, dark green, olive color. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're almost, they're almost shiny and they're just dark green. Like you can't even, they're so dark that you can't even see the bars on them. You know, they're just a dark green fish. Whereas Tiny fish are almost silver with the very distinct green bars, you know. It's it always amazed me that they could be so so different. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now I got yeah. another question about that specific fish. Was there a big scar about I don't know, four <laughs> inches behind its head, like a hook might have caught into it and it took <laughs> off and drug my boat for a few feet? <laughs> I had that happen. It, it snagged itself, and it just kept going, and it finally ripped out. And I was just wanted closure on that. That's all. <laughs> just say yes. Just, yes. There we go. I'm not convinced, and but you had it. so uh, anyway, yeah, we see we see several 52s out of time tuning every year. Any notable giants outside of Pomatuning, Connie Lake, Edinburgh, um, besides the 54? Yeah, I mean, Canada definitely had others in the 50s. But um, from what I have seen, you know, Edinburgh, Woodcock, those are, those, they had more, they had higher numbers, but not the big, the big, big giants. Okay. Because that's always a, a, a topic that people bring up. They're like, I don't think there's a 50 in Edinburgh. And I'm like, I always want to hold out hope. Oh, yeah. They're definitely in there. I mean, we definitely seen them. It was just, it would be like one a year instead of many. You know what I mean? I like that answer. All right. Musky, voluntary musky permit. Yep. Let's talk about that and just yeah, tell I'm us gonna, the overall. Okay. So here's the deal on the musky permit. Um, it's one of those things that came around because, um, you know, everybody's, hmm, I don't even know where to start here. So the muskie program has always been a topic of conversation because of the misconception, in my opinion, that it was more expensive than the bank, than the the anglers were enjoying. The anglers weren't getting a million dollars worth of enjoyment out of these fish. You know, was it was it worth the was it worth the price? Um, so there's always been whenever there's a chance to do a survey or something like that, they'd always put a musky question on there. Do how many times did you fish for muskies this year? Um, so that's just always been something that's been in the back of people's minds. So then when the money when money got really really tight within the fishing boat commission, they started looking for new ways to generate revenue. Somebody brought up the idea of selling voluntary permits so if people really care about a program and they want to give more money to that program that's a way for us to kind of help fund these programs um so naturally the muskie program since they already had the conception out there that it was costing more money than um we were getting back from angler license sales um it was just a natural fit to be one of the programs um 
you know, there's a lot of things there that I don't agree with, but the long and the short of it is that what, you know, with, but from what I've seen in the Fish and Boat Commission, I have all of the confidence in the world to be able to reassure people that any money that comes in on the muskie stamp will definitely go towards the muskies. Um, there's there's tons of programs within the agency already, whether it be mentored youth or the Great Lakes, um, the Great Lakes money that comes in off the, the, the Lake Erie stamp. You know, all that money goes into a, a dedicated account and it gets used just for those things. And there's people that ask questions. You know, if you, when you, we write a little proposal to buy, to use some of the money out of that fund, there's people that ask questions and people that ask questions of that person just to make sure these monies are going to where they're supposed to be. So I don't have a doubt in my mind that the money that comes in for each of these programs is definitely going to be used for that program. My concern and what I've been trying to tell muskie anglers, and I really I appreciate the platform to be able to talk on your show about it, is I don't want this muskie permit to be the least popular of the permits. You know what I mean? That after all these years of fighting and fighting for the program, and finally we're stocking these huge fish out here and i'm starting to hear guys going out and having five fish days or six fish days on pine tuning and i'm hearing really good things out of edinburgh and canadota um even glendale i'm starting to hear some really good stuff about um i think these fish are working and i think if we can give them give this another four or five years maybe we'll be able to grow this program into something that's a driving force for license sales um but the disaster scenario is that these musky permits don't sell and it sends a sends a clear picture to people making money decisions that yep this program really isn't very popular you know and you just so, had all this major breakthrough on pellets and you're you're doing all these great things and you're right on the cusp of just exploding yeah, the program exactly and these are slow growing fish so all the great things I'm going to do this year the anglers aren't going to benefit from it for five years, you know, <laughs> right. so we gotta, we gotta keep this thing going. And I, I mean, I, I, my heart and soul is into it and I love seeing reports coming back and I get guys sending me text messages all the time on the fish they catch and stuff. I want to see that continue to grow. And if these, if these permits don't sell, it's just going to be one, one more thing for people to say, hey, why are we spending all this money on muskies when nobody's fishing for them? Right. So I'm hoping these things will fly off the shelves. <clears throat> and the, the added benefit is the money. I mean, the, the money means way less to me than actually just the numbers of sold permits does. Um, but the, the, the money coming in already seems like it's going to be significant. Last time I checked, there was like 167 musky permits sold for $10 a piece. You know, that's a couple thousand dollars. And that was as of like January Twelfth or something like that. So I'm sure a lot more are sold now, and nobody's even fishing for them yet. So if this is, this could be a significant amount of money that comes in, and that's really going to benefit the muskie program. Um, so it, the things it would okay. it would be it'd be interesting. Like, is there like in your mind like a goal? So let's just I'm going to use round numbers again: thirty thousand dollars to feed these muskies. If mm -hmm. if if it can reach. Eight, ten, twelve thousand, five thousand. I don't know the number, but if you're like, look at, we just offset twenty five percent of the cost of feeding these fish off of these voluntary permits. We're getting X amount of dollars as 
you know, just grants or what have you from like Muskie's Inc., whatever you want to call it, you know, additional funds there. This Muskie program, which was touted as a million dollar program, now the feeding of it is literally $15,000. Is that kind of like what you're trying to like really offset there money wise? Well, not really. Um, I mean, that's kind of where it started from. I think the initial idea when they first started floating the permits was to offset some of these costs for the program. And, uh, that would have been good enough, but I think it's better than that now. Cause I think while we're decreasing the cost of the program, if we can get that million dollar program down to a $200,000 program and the actual physical cost of the feed is only $30,000. Like you said, if some of that could be offset by these permits, all of a sudden the muscue program is solid. You know, it's, there's no reason to eliminate it because it's not costing anything. But now they've already committed that because of the change in leadership, we're not looking at offsetting costs anymore. We're, we're telling the anglers, the money you spend on these permits is going to go to additional benefits for the program. So we're committing to the anglers and saying we are going to keep spending the same amount of money we've been spending on the muskie program. But every dollar, every ten dollars you guys buy and give us, we're going to buy extra stuff to make the program better. Which dream things that I didn't think I was ever going to be able to get is like uh, inline water heaters. You know, like I described at the beginning of this program, we're water temperature is critical at the early stages of converting these fish and we're using our the boiler that we're heating the building with to heat up that water we can for three thousand dollars we can buy an inline water heater that sits right on the musky tanks and can provide 25 gallons a minute of 70 degree water right to those tanks so if we can get four of those in a row the muskies can have their own source of water that isn't affected by anything else at the hatchery. We can just dedicate that to those fish and having them on the best growing temperature that they can be on. That would be phenomenal. There's other, there's other states now that are, um, I actually went up to Vermont um, earlier this year and kind of looked at their, they have an intensive walleye culture where they're, they're converting walleyes very similar to how we're converting muskies onto dry food. Because um, they, they just don't have the pond space to be able to do walleyes the way they, we do. So they're doing it intensively on dry feed. Um, and they're doing it very, very similar to how we're doing the muskies. And it's very, they're, they're very cannibalistic. So the, the feeding regime is very critical, the same as it is in the muskies. So I found it very interesting. And then now they're in the process of converting all their round whirlpool tanks, like I was talking about. They had the same thing we do, but they're converting them over to self-cleaning tanks. So these tanks, you know, when we when we have to go in and clean these musky tanks every day, we hate doing it because we disturb them. We have to get in there with squeegees and squeegee all the waste and feed over to one side and then get in there with siphons and siphon it out. These self-cleaning tanks have squeegees that are on the side of the wall and on the bottom, and it just moves very, very slowly. So slowly you can almost not see it. But it moves around the whole tank all day long, and then there's like a little trough in the bottom. So every time it gets to that trough, all the food falls down into there. So all you have to do is walk by every couple hours, pull a little valve, and suck that feed, that feed gets sucked right out. The fish don't get disturbed at all. They don't even notice anything's moving, and they stay on feed all day long instead of being disturbed for a couple hours. And they've seen a 20% increase in their efficiency on their conversions. So if we can, if we can start affording bonus things like that for the muskie program there's no end in sight on how great we can do for the anglers of pennsylvania 
Oh, this is incredible! Amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I don't want to. I don't want to go any further than that because that's that's a great ending statement. Yeah. I mean, we have. I have. I have. We've already gone over an hour and a half, and we oh, could wow. go. We could go another yeah. five hours if we want. Yeah. Plus, that gives you enough information. Once you write down some questions, we'll do it again next week. <laughs> next week okay <laughs> we will definitely be asking you to come back on because you know that that was that was great and there's there was stuff we skipped over i think todd brought it up like we just couldn't go down that rabbit hole right but yeah. so i know i just wanted this to be just an open-end form of questions i did have to hold myself back just so we uh-huh. had some type of direction in this and it <laughs> wasn't just the three hosts Crushing this guy, blurting out questions randomly. Hey, Hey, it's my name first. (laughs) So, all right, let's uh, let's wrap this one up because this one's this one's great. So, all right, big thanks, Fatty Z Musky Products, FattyZMusky.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides. It's Todd and Vance booking up quick in New York. Hit up Todd for some early season in Pennsylvania, mcfishingguides.com. Big thanks, St. Croix Rods, Ranger Boats, Vicks Marine and Sports Center. Muskies, Inc. And tell you what, you just heard the Fish and Boat Commission talking. Muskies, Inc.'s a part of that. You heard him talk about it a little bit. We weren't lying. Join Muskies, Inc. It's not that expensive. Buy your muskie voluntary permit if you're in Pennsylvania. You heard where it's going to go. No end in sight. Sky's the limit. Make these muskies humongous. And the Muskie Max Plus coming up very soon, less than four weeks. Uh, we're going to be down there, Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. Come join us. Come see the fun. Um, be a part of it. It's great. Um, for everyone, thanks for listening.